loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Susan Hayden. Susan's a poet, playwright, novelist, and essayist. Her plays have been performed live on KPFK's Pacific Performance Showcase and produced at the Met Theater, Padua Playwrights, The Lost Studio, and elsewhere. Her poems so sorry, I lost my place. <laughs> Her poems and stories have been published in numerous anthologies, including Beat Not Beat from Moontide Press, The Black Body from Seven Stories, and best-selling Los Angeles in the 1970s, Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. She was a finalist in the inaugural Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award with Penguin Press for her unpublished novel, Cat Stevens Saved My Life. She's creator and producer of Library Girls, a monthly words and music series, which we previously talked about on the show, and it's in, in its 14th year as Ruskin, at Ruskin Group Theater. In 2015, she was presented with the Artist in the Community Ruta Finkel Award from the Santa Monica Arts Foundation, and you can find her at SusanHayden.com. Welcome back, Susan. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be back. It, it's great to have you. I, you know, I feel like this show has created my tribe, and you're uh, someone <laughs> in my tribe that we've kind of interacted, you know, several different ways at this point. Always a pleasure. And Me congratulations too. on your book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, you st you start by calling it uh, your book. Uh, a collection of poems, stories, and fragments. Could we start with how you decided to uh, create it in that way? Um, it, to me, it feels like it fits grief so well. Stories, po poems, and fragments, you know, yes. all the little pieces, we can't put them all together, and then we do. Uh, but I don't know if that was part of your thinking. Well, that's interesting that you that you mentioned that because you're right. Grief is not one straight narrative. It's so choppy, right? So um, a couple different reasons why I chose to create. I feel like I created this format. I mean, there are books that are hybrid, but I write in many different forms. I've written a novel. I write short stories. I write essays. I write poetry, um, memoir. Uh, these these story poems, I would say. So I wanted to, I wanted to tell my story this way, like, and because each form, it's the same voice, but each each form invites a different kind of an opening for me. And so, as I say, like with the fragments, which are the pieces in italics in the book, it's kind of like telling your friend a secret. There's an intimacy to the fragments that don't belong in the other pieces. And the essays, the personal, the personal essays allow me to tell a bit of a longer story. The poems are much more crafted, um, I want to say, less conversational. 
um, succinct. So it's just like different aspects of me. Also, I am a collage artist. I, mean, I haven't done it so much these, this last year, but the way that I generally begin writing is through creating a collage. Before I put word to page, I will create a mixed media collage, cut and paste, scissors, magazines, newspaper, images, and words. And it helps re to reveal my unconscious, my concerns that maybe aren't at the forefront of my mind and my everyday thinking. And so that is something that that's been a practice of mine. And so this is like a word collage. Hmm. It, I yeah. sort of carried that over. A lot of these pieces were, there were collages for many of these pieces beforehand, but the whole thing became a collage. People are saying, people who've read it have, have been saying, this is like a, a jigsaw or like a mosaic or a collage. So it's just in me. It's part of who I am. And, uh, and I think that it gives some breathing room to the grief to not just say, here's my story, blah, you know, and just sort of reveal it as one, as we talked about, as one straight narrative. Um, it gives, it gives a breath, gives some air. And also, um, and it sounds as if you did collage and you wrote um, before your most significant loss, before your husband died. Yes. Did you do both those things before he died? Since I've been doing these things since I've been doing both since my teens. And so, yes, um, I met Chris at 27. He died when I was 45. I was actually in a class uh, from it was from for my 40th birthday. He gave part of my present was he paid for this workshop that I really wanted to be in. And it was a mixed media montage class. I had never actually been or a workshop, I should say. I had never I'm not an, I'm not a visual artist really, but I, it's just, it's something I, it was a personal thing for me, mm -hmm. um, not really meant to be shared with others. Um, and so being in this class, just a workshop took it to another level. And I met a lot of other people who were doing the same thing. And there were a lot of writers in the class, in the workshop. And then I, um, I ended up being the organizer that I am. I ended up getting us a show, then another show and, at a great gallery. And so it became a little more serious for a while, but yeah, it was, it, well, it, it, it was during the time when I was raising a, a young son, um, when Chris was still alive and it was like four hours on a Tuesday and that was just time for, for just me. So that was good. I'm also really interested in, you know, most people in grief, uh, can't identify what's helping them because it feels as if nothing is helping them, uh, you know, but later you identify that there were things that helped. So the idea to, that you can just write a little thing about something or just make one little picture, a kind of in the moment practice you already had, I could imagine that helped you. It in did. Some way. It did help me tremendously. I mean, mostly at the beginning of, of my loss in 2008 of my first husband, Chris, I carried around a little notebook with me, like I always had. I do it less now. I kind of write in my phone, which is horrible, but, and it's my, my handwriting has suffered, but 
It's I the always- client version, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I just, I had a little notebook and a pen and I would just think of things and take notes. Remember this. And as something to later write about, because there was so much happening all the time. It was like, I had this heightened sense of, of uh, instinct, heightened instinct, heightened perceptions, and I didn't want to forget them. And I knew I was in such chaos that I would forget them. So writing them down. So mostly I would go back to notes and sometimes I couldn't even read them, but I would definitely, you know, keeping that was the beginning during that time for me. Those were the beginnings of pieces were those those notes and notebooks. I, I feel as if that does stand out in in the book because some of the specificity of what you captured uh, really does stand out. Um, for instance, the maybe you'll share it now or later, the piece of things that were said to you. Yes. It's, I mean, those would wash off over time if you hadn't captured them a little bit. Don't you think? Yes. Um, and it's the specific in that that makes it so universal that every person in grief has had just such wrong things said to them because people don't know what to say, right? And people don't know how to support a person in grief, right? So true. I mean... And you, I think there's an expectation that the people closest to you will understand because they, they, they know, they, they know the person you lost or they know, you know, they know you so well and what you might need, but it's sometimes it's the opposite and it hurts so much more if someone that you trust and someone that, that someone that was like a life, something, someone you viewed as a lifetime friend, a lifelong forever friend just turns and what I really learned about, I, I will read the piece, but what, what I want to say is what I learned about that is that I found that, you know, you create your role in a friendship the same way you create your role in a partnership. And mm-hmm. when the role, role drastically changes, which it does in grief, that's, that's, it's testament to the person in front of you, your friend, your whoever, that it's testament if they stay and they adjust to those changes the way we do, hopefully in a partnership, you want your friends to be able to say, okay, she's not busy taking care of me anymore. I need to take care of her now. Like the roles have to reverse a little bit or whatever the roles were, they're going to change. And I think that that's the thing that's very tricky is that a lot of people cannot make that adjustment. And they're attached to the way that you were. Exactly. It's a loss to them. They don't want to face that you're that way right now. Yes. And all we want from, from the people, anybody is not, we don't want the right words. We just want someone to, as we say in grief, hold space, hold the space for us, show up and be present. And it sounds so hard and complicated, but it's quite easy just to be there. It's more a feeling, a sense. So we know we're not alone in it. And maybe there's also something there of um, uh, true empathy that you understand why the person is not acting as they did. You understand that that must indicate the magnitude of what's happened. I think people miss that a lot, don't you? Yes. And even, I mean, I I had some friends who actually 
had grief support group training, but sometimes that just gets thrown out when you're being tested by a, by your own life and the people in your life who are going through it. You can know all, you can have all the information in the world about how to, how to be in a grief support group and be the leader of it. But when it comes to friendship, I mean, we all have our own needs, right? And so it's really about like putting our needs aside and coming forward in presence and in strength and just being- For, for potentially a considerable period of time. Yes, yes. Do you want me to read the piece? Yeah. Oh yeah, that would okay. be great. All right. This is called, she said the healing meter has expired. She said, his death took the life out of you. She said, you used to be gracious and carefree. She said, you've lost all of your joy and charisma. She said, everyone is waiting for the happy ending to this story. She said, stop asking about my art and calling it my art. She said, now that you're single, your ego is out of control. She said, it's like you're on some power trip with men. She said, you used to treat me like I was magic. She said, every conversation between us was an awakening. She said, I didn't like it when my husband called you beautiful. She said, three is an awkward number. She said, you used to tell me that I was beautiful. She said, there will be no cell phones at this dinner table. She said, I don't care if your teenage son is calling you from Nepal. She said, you're right. I'm not a mother, so I wouldn't understand. She said, I care about you a great deal, but you don't make it easy. She said, it felt safer to be friends with you when you were married. She said, our world used to fit together so perfectly. She said, I hear in grief you get a new address book. Well, guess what? It's true. She said, I predict your husband's death will put you in a bad mood for 10 years. She said, I'll only be sticking around for six. She said, I miss the Susan who wrote thank you notes. She said, I would have done anything for you. She said, you would have done anything for me. She said, I wanted to be an old lady with you in Paris, but I'll be going there with my other girlfriends now. She said, my mom used to lock me in the closet and leave me there for hours. You kind of remind me of her. She said, watching you all hunched over is a lesson in keeping my shoulders back. She said, your life changed. I don't see my place in it. She said, although we go to the same therapist, she's advised me to end this friendship. She said, I need a break from all this sadness. She said, I admit, I liked you better before he died. She said, sorry, but I can only show my courage in your dream. Some of them just, oh. <laughs> I feel them in my body. Oh. Uh, of course, one that stands out is 
the therapist one. Yeah. And, what? you know, again, taking license, like, cause we did have the same therapist. It had been her therapist for like 30 years. And this, I have no idea what the therapist told her, but a lot of this is like projections, assumptions, um, things she really did say, which she's, there were things in there. Most of the things she really did say at one time or another over six years, but there were also things like, wait, we go to the same therapist. Why isn't she helping this? And so I left the therapist. I was like, bye. I'm not, I can't do this anymore. If this is, if this is what's happening and truth isn't coming forward in a, in a, a kind and supportive way. So yeah, I, I came up with that one on my own. <laughs> I, think it is, I believe it's true because I think if the therapist had said to her, you need to work on this, you need to tell her what you think you need to try to work on getting this friendship back. She would have, cause she listened to everything she said. So I truly believe that the therapist said, just let it go. Very painful. One of my dearest friends too. Yeah. It almost gave the impression that it was many she's, but it was the nature of that relationship with one she but it's an exaggeration of what happens with a lot of people isn't it uh not everyone says it out loud but some some uh friendships do not survive it's true and and this one was particularly painful because she's someone who used to say to me friendship never ends and we're in the same soul family i mean we had a level of friendship that was like nothing like nothing i'd had in a long time and we were best friends as couples so it changed the dynamic all of a sudden. It was just me. I've read that in, in other, um, you know, grief memoirs that suddenly you're a threat to the couple instead of one of the four. <laughs> you know? um, I so I have been told that by other people that that's probably why it happened, but I'll never know. Mm -hmm. And and thankfully, writing this book really helped helped heal that. We do, we do do what we have to do, you and I and many other people, to move forward from loss. And that was another loss, wasn't it? A, A secondary loss, as they say in my world. Yes, secondary loss, for sure. Let's, let's take a break and come back and talk some more. Uh, listeners, you can find links to my website and social media, the Good Grief page at Voice America. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. And that other one that doesn't really have a name anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I'm getting ready to to do some TikTok, so that'll be coming. Uh, you can find Susan Hayden at susanhayden.com. It's H-A-Y-D-E-N.com. Be back soon. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month.
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Susan Hayden, the author of Now You Are a Missing Person. So I realize we skipped a very elemental part of the back background, uh, probably because you've been on the show before and we talked deeply about it. But for listeners who didn't catch that show, the thing that uh, stands out about your the loss of your husband is n- not the loss, but also the trauma. So could you talk a little bit about that? Um, you know, what happened and kind of uh, what that was that left you in, because I do think that's a substantial part of your of your story. Yes, for sure. Um, so I was married. I was together with my late former husband, Christopher Allport, uh, for 17 and a half years. And he was an actor and an avid mountaineer. And he uh, we had at the time an 11 year old son together and he had a 27 year old at the time they're now almost 27 and 43 anyway yes and so uh he would take a lot of day trips to the local mountains if there was powder to go skiing in the back country and he ended up um going with our friend and neighbor across the street and he was killed in an avalanche and he went he ducked the rope which is what he would do to get the fresh powder the, the ungroomed slope and he um there had been warnings that he ignored and he um was buried under 12 feet of snow and he was missing overnight his friend witnessed his friend witnessed our friend witnessed the the accident and tried to get him out and couldn't and um and then that you know they had to they had to the search and rescue had to give up the uh the search because it was too dangerous um not unlike what just happened with julian sands um there was they just couldn't they had to stop and so they found him the next morning and 
uh, yes, I always knew I was with a risk taker, but he was someone who had, I would say hubris and, and believed he was invincible. And I think he had all of us convinced he was too. Was for, you know, a good long time, right? I mean, no I he cheated death many, many times that I don't even know about. Yeah, I, it reminds me, um, I I don't consider the, the, the death of my first wife traumatic whatsoever. It was so expected. But what was stunning was all the times she'd been told she was going to die and then she didn't die. It makes the moment where the person finally dies a little bit dizzying or, you know, it's confusing because you've had all those times to not believe it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. It's probably even like numbing, right? Because you just, because you're preparing, you're preparing, you're preparing for death. You're preparing for that moment. And then it, it's like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, I'm glad that the final thing that happened, I, I will not say I was glad at the time, obviously, but uh, the final thing that happened was unrecoverable. Mm -hmm. Very clear. They did make a little mistake. They said, no one lives with this beyond a month and a half. And she lived four months. <laughs> so still, but we knew she would die of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, preparation, believing it's going to happen, for me, mattered a lot. Mm -hmm. I, you know, and, and why would you believe it was going to happen? Because that was who he was. And uh, I mean, yeah, I always like there was this part of me that thought, oh, this could happen. Like that was there. But I had I had to, to put it away somewhere to really be able to be to have a life with him. And I had to just trust and not go to that place. Because otherwise, it would have been, you know, too painful to constantly, I would have just been too anxious about, it would be like denying him his own nature. I knew this is what ironically made him feel the most alive, was the adrenaline of going and doing these things. Like whether it was ice climbing or rock climbing or skiing or kayaking or, you know, all of, all of these things, but some, some riskier than others. An essential feature of being him. Exactly. You can't deny that in a person. And so I had to really just go with it and trust. And um, and then, so what happened with us was, yeah, there's that shock that is, it's almost like a, I want to say it like, it's like gauze. It like wraps you in gauze and kind of, you know, in some way protects you from taking it all in. I knew it happened. My son knew it happened, but it was like how I describe in the book. It's like a crane fell on our heads. So we had to just process. And, um, and I had to, I had to save my son, my son. Uh, as I say, he was like a broken egg. Um, he really fell apart. It, it kicked in not the first week or two. It kicked in at about, you know, in a few weeks after after Chris died, and he was running away from school. He was running away from home. He was, it was, he was impossible to contain. And he had been this very sweet, soft spoken, eleven year old. And I, all I cared about was was saving him. 
And I had to, I was grieving privately, but I had to put my own grief aside to make sure he would, to stabilize him and make sure he was going to be okay. That was it because I thought otherwise I've lost them both because he wasn't recognizable to me. As we talked about the, the change, he was unrecognizable. He'd just become, you know, he thought he was so afraid that it could happen to me. And he was just in absolute terror. And so, um, you know, I did what I, I, I probably told you in the last show I was on of yours. I created this committee of men for him so that he would have um, those pillars. And, you know, one was the guy who took him to the mountains to hike. One was the guitar teacher, since his dad was the person who was teaching him guitar. Um, and one was the rabbi, because I thought, even though I wasn't religious, that he was at that age where, uh, you know, you go into bar mitzvah training if you're not in if you're not enrolled in Hebrew school. And um, we were not religious at all, but uh, my husband had been Episcopalian. But we, I thought maybe there's some spirituality in this for him. Maybe there's some role model in the rabbi. And um, like me, he quit after, you know, once he was done with his training, he said, no, I don't believe in this. And so, but whatever it was, it was a place for him to go on a Saturday with a bunch of other people and that didn't know him. And so, yeah. You probably chose well. Probably the particular rabbi had a little bit of wisdom or presence that, that <laughs> rubbed off Absolutely. a bit. Rabbi Stan Levy, he was he's a presence and he is soulful and he was he was definitely um the right person for the job. It's just that I was giving my son a choice in whether he wanted to do it or not. And so it wasn't a huge commitment. But yeah. And just and many others that were that were on the committee, and that helped stabilize him. And then we ended up within six months, we ended up at our house grief support center in West Los Angeles. And he was in the in the adolescent group, and I was in the middle age group. And that was truly the beginning of our healing. There's a there's a a, a poem in there. I'm not sure if I can remember which one that that talks about. Um, attending that for the first time. Do, do you recall? Yes. <laughs> I I really enjoyed that because that's how everyone feels the first time they go, right? Yes. I don't have anything in common with these people, you know, and then of course you have everything in common. Uh, yeah, this, this is a, I wrote this for the book and it's called The Broken Gift. In the summer of 2004, we were in Nantucket for my mother-in-law's memorial. There was a gathering in her honor where we had to climb a ladder to get to the rooftop of someone's home and have drinks with other family members. Bet you've never been up on a widow's walk, Chris said. Wives of mariners would stand on viewing platforms and await their husband's return from the ocean, or not. I remember thinking, I don't want to be up here. It's bad luck. That's all I could think of four years later when I arrived at our house grief support center and stepped into a room of middle-aged grievers. I sat down and faced the others, each of whom had lost a spouse. There was nobody I wanted to be friends with. I truly thought my story was the worst story. No one's loss would be able to come close to mine. Within minutes, it was as if we were all sewn together a crazy quilt of inconsolables. 
my heart was excavated. Everyone's story was the worst story. Love that line. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to hold on to that when everyone's story was the worst story. Because I do say things similar to clients a lot, you know, you're in your story. It's the worst one for you, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and the truth is, is that grief is the great equalizer. You know, it levels the playing field. And it's just, it, and, and hopefully in the best of circumstances, it opens your heart up to others who are going through the same thing. And you become this extended family. And there's so much identification and and meaning is is found again and there's less judgment yeah and then at the at the risk of obviously i never want to imply that parents are entirely responsible for how their kids come out because it isn't true however all those things you did do seem to show themselves in your in your son's life i've interviewed him he's a musician you know he's He's written music that very much comes out of a grief experience. He seems loving and balanced and deep. Thank you. Right. Um, yes. He's you certainly... agree with all those things I just said. Yeah, I mean, oh, for sure I do. And, you know, we obviously he was 11. He had had no need for a therapist before uh, Chris's death. But I put him in not just the grief group, but therapy and therapy actually came before the grief group. And so he was, he, he had, we found a therapist for him. He was on the committee of men as well. And he had a place to go once a week. Sometimes he even had to go twice a week. Um, just, just for that other, almost like helping me co-parent in a sense, if that, yeah. Like, and so that really helped, um, until it didn't, but he has been, he has been going to therapy since Chris died, he took one break and, uh, he is, he's, he continues to go and he is, he is self-actualized. I want to say he's, he's, and he also understands he calls therapy a luxury and he feels like, you know, he grateful. He has said in interviews that he feels grateful that it was an opportunity for him that he was given by me, uh, because I wasn't given that in my upbringing. It was a different era. My dad didn't believe in therapy. I had very few friends that I knew of that were going to therapy back then. And it would have helped a lot. <laughs> it seems like there's been a, a bit of a sea change in, in attitudes towards therapy in the last few years, partially because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But yeah, sure. my 30-year-old daughter, she pretty much says, oh yeah, we're all in therapy. You know, yeah. we, we need those spaces, you know, that's our healing, etc. Um, I think that's much more common to hear than when I first embarked on being a therapist, for sure. It's much more of a, oh, why do you need to do that sort of thing? Also, there's so many options for therapy now. It's not just therapy. It's not just Freud. It's not just psychoanalysis. There's like so many ways that you can, that would fit the person. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll imagine that we share that um, having kids come out so very well after having early loss like that is a big relief. You know, it's, it's, 
it's something I'm very, very grateful for myself with my children. Yes. That they're they're all well, you yes. know, with their things like everyone. Of course. <laughs> but, I mean, um, the crack is there, you know, there's always going to be that crack, but it is about sort of where you, how, how you work with it, the way we work with any wound we have, how you work with it, right? How you, what you do to feel, to move forward and, um, and move through it. And, um, he's definitely, you know, my son has always had his music starting with, um, the first few chords of guitar that my, my first husband, his dad taught him. And, and I, I gave him that you know, continue a continued gift by telling him you've got to make albums of your music, write songs. And like, so he could see the, the permanent record of the work he was doing. So he made five albums by the time he was in college. And three, yeah, five by the time he was out of college. Uh, one thing that I have said a lot about, um, grief and and therapy is that i can't remember a time where someone came about grief early grief childhood grief where they would say um everyone encouraged me to talk about them um our grief was shared it was an open conversation never ever do i hear that i hear no one would let me talk about them you know no one gave me a space it was like they disappeared that's what i hear it's it's how a child is carried through it, I think, that determines whether it's um, a way forward or a, a stopping point for people. Yes. So I'm, true. I'm sure you've observed the other yourself. Oh, you yes. know. I have. Yes. Just like uh, that's less common now. There's more. Because people go to the internet and look how to support a child in grief a little bit more. Yeah. I, no, I remember, you know, having a friend from um, from early childhood who committed suicide. Um, she was 15 and um, her boyfriend I got in touch with on Facebook after, um, you know, years later. And he said his parents said, we're never talking about her again. And that was it. That was that was how they helped him with that. So I, I'm glad I had the information to not do that and you too because yeah. it, it is helpful to have it open maybe we overdid it sometimes I'm, i'll speak for myself maybe i overdid it sometimes no there's no overdoing being open <laughs> i don't think let's go to another break and and come back i i would like to talk in the third part of our our time together about what it's like to move forward to the point where you make a new life um and in both of our cases with a new person and um how those two intersect i'm i'm currently thinking about that a lot so i'd love to talk with you about it oh great okay and uh listeners as i've said you can go look for me at my website weatheringgrief.com or the good grief host page links to everything there and to find susan hayden go to susanhayden.com back soon America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. 
Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Susan Hayden, the author of Now You Are a Missing Person, and uh I do want to talk in this last segment about moving forward into new relationship, but I realize I'd like to finish out our, our talking about Mason by having you share the poem in the book about him. Yes, uh, this is one of a few pieces about him, but it's a more recent piece, meaning I wrote it more recently. It's called, But What About Odetta? But what about Odetta, our son asked, when I told him his father was missing in the snow? She was his favorite singer. This was to be her final tour. She was 77. He was 11. We had tickets to see her in concert that night, had been planning it for months. He cried when I told him we couldn't go. Our son was used to his father taking off to the woods or the rocks, some river or slope. He could be late, get lost sometimes or snowed in, but he'd always find us and catch up to whatever we had planned. Our son asked if his father could just meet us at McCabe's when he got home. But I had to say, no, this is more serious. I needed a drive to Mountain High while listening to car radio news updates. I needed to wait there for my husband, for his father to be found one way or the other. 
Our son asked when I got home if he could sleep in the bed with me. He knew they'd called off the search and his father was still missing. When will he be back? He asked repeatedly. I lit a candle, turned out the lights. From the bed, when I looked up at the ceiling, I could have sworn I'd seen the shadow of a skier climbing uphill. Our son was half asleep when I said, I don't have a good feeling about this. I held him in my arms for hours. Only these days, when he tells the story, he doesn't even remember my being there. In the middle of the night, I knelt in the kitchen, singing an Odetta song, hit or miss, trying to find comfort in her rejoicing. And finally, I stood over the trash can, tore up the concert tickets. Oh, what, I what I think about that is a lot of things, but one thing is, what is it that makes it real, right? It there are things that make it real that the loss has happened. And I feel as if Odetta made it real. Yeah. That there was no way that he would have missed that. That's right. Any kind of choice. That's right. You know, um, a little anecdote about this piece and, and how it came about. Because I, I mean... I've referred to that night a lot. And in fact, you were asking me about collage and montage. And um, there was one thing when I came back to class after Chris died to that, to that workshop, I just kept doing these, these um, photo transfers of what looked like a skier climbing uphill, like the shadow that I saw. It was like a, not a compulsion, but it was like, I couldn't get out of that image and I would do multiple ones and I'd color them in. And it was very healing for me to do that. But I never, I hadn't really written about, I, I wrote, I actually wrote a play and I wrote a monologue about that moment, about looking at the shadow and all of that. But I hadn't written a poem about it. And then Mason, my son Mason, was on this other uh, podcast about grief um, by this lovely woman named Tara Nash. She does a show called Conscious Grief. And I had been on the show and I had recommended him. And I couldn't wait to hear what he had to say. And I was listening. And she said, so tell me about the night your dad was missing and what happened. And he went through all the, you know, the whole story. And he said, yeah, you know, and my mom went to go find him and I didn't see her till the morning. And I was like, oh, what? I mean, I wanted to just, I didn't know what to do. So, you know, I called him, took a breath and just said, I need to, you know, you were great. I need to talk to you about something. I was there and I went through the night with him. I talked about the candle and holding him and all the things. He's like, oh, I must have remembered it wrong. And I thought, yeah, trauma, right? I mean, you were you mentioned trauma. It's like how it affects us, what we remember, what we don't remember, what stories we tell ourselves, as Joan Didion said, in order to live. Also, there's a brand, I'm not very scientific, that might not surprise you, but little pieces of science capture my imagination. For instance, in, in severe trauma, um, there's a short-term and long-term memory in the brain. Yes. And the short-term memory gets shut down. And so 
things that happen in that period are actually not saved to the long-term memory. So I think that's probably what happened with him. Yes, it damages the hippocampus, I think, right? right. It just, it, it is not in his brain to find. Right. That's what I would assume. Yeah, yeah, but it was jarring to hear it. And then sit down section, but maybe at that moment, but later, it's not like you can go, you know, spin the Rolodex and find that memory. It, it basically is not there. Yeah, yes. So the poem, to write the poem was healing, to read him the poem after was also healing. Mm. And, yeah. And I can imagine because you were there for him, because you just told me your entire focus became saving him, not losing him. Yes, right? certainly, certainly until I felt he was stabilized. Right. So that, that night, that's something to overcome, right? You're in trauma and you show up for him. So you would want him to remember, know that happened. Because <laughs> you know, yes. that was yeah. so yeah. for you, right? And that we, it was to me like this foreshadowing of what was to come with it just being the two of us. Like we were, we were connected in our not knowing not knowing what was going to happen next, not knowing really if his father was alive or not would be found, not, you know, and just being together in our aloneness together. Mm -hmm. It was the beginning. So, yeah. Well, I sure don't want to get out of here without talking about our shared experience of eventually loving again. <laughs> and, um, because that's quite a passage, you know, I'm, I'm doing some writing and a lot of thinking about how those weave together, because obviously that first person doesn't go anywhere. It's not, it, even in divorce, there's residue from past relationship, but in, in death, there's no reason to shut it down, really. You know, that person is a part of your life, obviously. And then if children even more, that person is your son's father. So what do you think it took for you to get to the place where you, you were open to loving again and could, because you, you know the terms, right? If you've had a spouse loss, you know that's possible in the world. Yes. And to me, that was one of the big things to yes. deal with. What about... So I mean, you know, for me, it just took 10 years until I felt better. And, um, and, and it took making some, I don't want to say bad choices, but making some choices that kept me in the same spot so that I could heal, knowing that we didn't have a future. So I did have other, a couple other relationships I had been in, but they were like, it was just like a heel and toe. I mean, it wasn't going to go anywhere. And, um, and that limit certainly limited the, what we could really share past a certain point. But um, I, I needed that time. And I also, um, I have to say, in the time away from Chris, I really found myself. And I hadn't, I hadn't when I was married to him. So it was, it was an autonomy, uh, for lack of a better word, journey. It was an autonomy journey for me to go from, from, you know, being dependent and having, being taken care of and to, to having to finding a way to, you know, being forced to 
take care of myself and and raise my son and ultimately feel like this was coming from a place of not it wasn't coming from a place of need it was coming from a place of desire and want and so um i happened to um meet randomly um another widower and um and it everything everything fell into place but it took the time that it took it was 10 and a half years after chris died and um and so and we share so much and it's a very different relationship and it's it's a much more i want to say adult relationship i was 27 when i met chris and um you know i've grown a lot <laughs> and and it was the right time for us and it, you know i don't think i have time to read the piece but uh you have to you have to get the book to read the pieces about about him which are at the end of, at the end of the story um but his name is steve and uh and yeah it's a it's a beautiful kind generous equal love and i i feel as if We'd never choose it for this reason, but grief can be a kind of a litmus test on future relationships. Um, you know, um, I don't think it's accidental that really the first conversation I ever had with my now wife was about the loss of her father and the loss of my wife. Right. That was our very first conversation. Um, because if someone can go there, there's possibility, right? Oh, yeah. It clears the way, right? For sure. Definitely. Exactly. So, and, you know, I obviously um, am, am put in touch with the things you're up to, and it does read, just as you're saying, a, a relationship, a, a, a great love of equals. Yes. I mean, at our wedding, we had a moment where we lit a, we both lit a candle for for his Mary and my Chris. It was a it was a moment in time where we just said this is for you, mm. knowing they'd want us to move forward, to move on, uh, and, and acknowledging that that they're a part of us and always will be. Right, um, and, and that takes some maturity on the part of the person who you're now involved with, doesn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's a good thing too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we definitely had experiences with other people who were threatened by the ghost of our former spouse. And yes. it's, it's just. This it's been lovely to have you. So great to have to be on the show. Thank well, you so that, much. Now that I'm maybe traveling again, I'll probably come visit my kid in L.A. Maybe we can have lunch again. I would love that. Thank you so much. Susanhayden.com to find her. Next week, I'm going to have uh, Suzanne Marriott to talk about her book, Watching for Dragonflies, A Caregiver's Transformative Journey. This has been Good Grief, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.